Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to take them out. And um, we are in the midst of a series in, in the book of Acts. And we find ourselves this morning in chapter 16. I didn't do an official count as I was preparing this week, um, but there are a lot of sermons that I could preach just in this chapter. And it was really hard to narrow it down to just one. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try, okay? With the few minutes that I have here. If you're in Acts chapter 16, I want to read one verse to start. And I think that it is the, at least it's the center point of what I want to share with you today. It's verse 25. Luke, write, Luke writes, About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. I remember back in elementary school, I don't remember his name, but I, I remember how he walked up and down the halls of my elementary school. He was our custodian at the school. And uh, he was just a, a real nice guy, and you know, he'd just kind of you know, push his cart, kind of like this. But there was another thing about this guy that just always got my attention. He went about his day singing songs. Wherever he was in the building, if you heard a melody from somewhere, he was our custodian. And I, I'm not sure if he was conscious of the fact that he was actually singing out loud, because he would have headphones on. And whatever soundtrack that he had going, you know, we were hearing him sing, and, and he just belted it out. And, it, you know, even as a, you know, six, seven, eight-year-old, it always just brought a smile to my heart. The people were so in, you know, just free to sing and to celebrate. And I was thinking about how many times music and songs do that work in our soul. When you get a, a positive, uplifting, you know, kind of an upbeat song stuck in your heart and in your mind, it, it, it changes your mood, this is a physiological reality. Um, music and specifically singing out loud releases chemicals uh, in, in our bodies that um, bring down our uh, blood pressure. Um, they reduce feelings of anxiety and depression and it just kind of, music has a way to, to change our mood for the better, for the positive. And my, the custodian at my elementary school, I think, was um, maybe one of the first people that I saw outside of my own home that would live a life like this, where music, he always had a soundtrack for his life. Then I was thinking about all of the times where music, songs have impacted in kind of a fun way uh, our family. 
Now there's a game that you can get at the toy stores, it's called Cranium. How many of you have played the game Cranium? Um, several of you in this room have played Cranium around the table at my house, and so I, I know about these things. And Cranium, you work your way around the board as teams, and it combines things like um, charades and Pictionary and um, Trivial Pursuit and all sorts of these things into one fun, sort of raucous game. But one of the activities is called the Humdinger. And so when it's your turn, and if you draw the card that says Humdinger, the person who has the card also has a song that has been selected for them on the back, and they have to look at the name of the song, and then they have to either hum it or whistle it to their uh, team without saying any of the words of the name of the song, and the team then has to guess what the song is. And I just remember uh, all of the times where you may know part of a song or like uh, one measure of the song, and so you're humming it over and over. You know that one? Star Wars. Hey, we all get a point. Move our piece. But some of them are songs where you're like, I don't know if I know that song. But you have to make an attempt. And so it's fun. It brings laughter. It's good, it's good medicine for the soul. And, and so when I read this verse, verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas, who we learn are now in jail, their backs are up against the wall, and they're singing hymns and praying. And the other prisoners that were around them were listening. Of course, I had to go back and look what, was, what happened before this moment in the story. And if you scan back, I'm not going to read all of it for you, but the story goes kind of like this, starting in verse 16. Paul and Silas are now uh, in the geographical territory in the city of Philippi. And they start their ministry. There's not a Jewish synagogue there, and so there's a place by the river where pe people, uh, followers, maybe fellow Jewish people would gather down by the river to pray, and they would go visit this place. But really, any preaching points to share the gospel were just out in the open marketplace, out in the open city. And they were going about their business, preaching the gospel of Jesus, sharing the good news, and there was a... a young girl who was following them around. She was uh, possessed by a spirit. She was owned by um, some people who used her to make money as a fortune teller. And she followed Paul and Silas around and called them out for who they were. Hey, they're preaching about Jesus. They are giving you a, a way to salvation. And for whatever reason... She kept at it. You would think maybe that was um, helpful in some way, that she's kind of, uh, she's telling everybody else around them, hey, they're talking about the Most High God, a way to salvation, and 
But it, Paul got annoyed. <laughs> Apparently, there was enough of a distraction. It was, it was taking away from their message and not adding to it that one day he got so fed up with it that he just turned around and said to the Spirit to leave her alone, and the Spirit left. And, of course, when that Spirit left, her fortune-telling abilities disappeared. And so now the owners have an economic problem. One of their sources of income um, is no longer of use to them. And so they want to take it out on somebody. And so they drag Paul and Silas to the middle of the town to the magistrates, and they make up this false story about Paul and Silas. And they get the crowd to believe all these bad, untrue things about Paul and Silas, and the the townspeople decide that it's worthy of being beaten by rods. And so they're publicly flogged, led off to jail, bruised, bleeding, sore, beaten. So they're put in jail, and now we get to verse 25, and it says about midnight. So imagine them, they're led to the innermost chamber of the jail, so it's probably the very darkest place, and they're locked in stocks, and their back may be up against a wall, literally, but figuratively, their backs are up against the wall, and they're sitting there in the dark, beaten and bruised and broken, having been put there by a kangaroo court on a bunch of trumped-up false charges. And there, it's at that moment that they start singing and praying. You kind of work your theology out at midnight, don't you? When your back's up against the wall, when it's dark and lonely, when you've been beaten and battered and, you know, just kind of pressed down. These are things that they don't teach you in Sunday school class, Sunday school class or in seminary to deal with. But life happens And when life happens, there are moments where you figure out what your theology actually is and how it's going to be expressed through your faith. And Paul and Silas were at this point. And their faith, the theology that came out of them, was a song, was a prayer, a praise to God. So they were able to find in this dark, troubling moment that they were wrongfully put there, they they find this moment of joy. That they go back to what their faith has taught them about God and who he is, who his character is. I like how... uh, Ancient uh, theologian and thinker Tertullian, he said, their legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. So they, were, they found themselves in a negative physical reality, but their hearts were in a different place, and that's what was shaping their thinking. The presence of God means that there's the potential uh, to be free, and they found this certain sense of freedom in the joy that they found in the Lord. 
And so instead of complaining and cursing at the people who put them there, instead of griping about their circumstances, they found an opportunity, they found a moment, they were able to express the true depth of their faith through this expression of joy in a song. Instead of complaining, they blessed God. Not groans of anguish directed by the pain that they were feeling, but words of praise, glorifying God for who he is. Singing, I think they realized, was something that deep down was really good for their soul. Eugene Peterson, um, he reminds us that, that joy isn't a requirement of, the, of Christian discipleship, but he reminds us that it is a consequence of Christian discipleship. When you begin a relationship with Jesus and you, you get to know God and you learn more about him, what you find is that joy is just a byproduct of your faith. Because we've experienced the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus, those are all things that we can celebrate and be joyful over, regardless of what circumstances we might be facing in life. We can sink in and remember the goodness of God, the promises of God. We can take joy in his creation that's all around us. There's joy in his forgiveness and joy in his mercy. There's, there's joy in salvation. We like being saved. Lisa and I were away this summer and we were on a hike and we met this couple, uh, they were in their 70s, and they were backpacking at the top of Haleakala uh, Crater on Maui. And it's really dry up there, and it's, it's kind of like a lunar landscape. And from the top of the crater, they call it the Trail of the Shifting Sands. And you work your way down into this crater, and there are some primitive campsites that are out there, and Bob and Ginger were on a backpacking expedition. They had just started out to go to these primitive campsites, and they were working their way around. And as we started down this trail, oh, maybe three-quarters of a mile of the way in, we, we passed them, and they were sitting on a rock, and Lisa heard them talking about ibuprofen. And we were wondering, you know, what's going on? And, but we, we continued on, and we figured that we would uh, encounter them somewhere along the trail when we turned around to come back out. We got down a couple miles, decided we saw weather coming in. We were like, yeah, we've had enough of our time up here, got all the pictures we needed. We started back up the trail of the shifting sands. It's named that for a reason. It's kind of sandy, and you let's like take a few steps, and you lose one, and... We come, up, we come up on Bob, who's just hobbling. He's got this backpack on. And he's taking steps about like this pace, and then he would stop every so often. And we're like, he's in trouble. And we could see Ginger, we didn't know their names at the time, but she was maybe a quarter of a mile ahead of him. And she was trying to get to the top, and we're like, something is wrong. They wouldn't have all this gear and be going that way. So we get to Bob and we say, what's, what's, what's going on? It looks like you're struggling. He's like, yeah, I, I think I pulled 
muscle in my leg, or I'm just in a lot of pain, and I, you know, I can hardly walk, but I'm going to make it out. And we're like, I'm going to take your pack, and I'm going to carry your pack out. And he resisted. Because you know what? Sometimes it's really hard to say that we need to be rescued, right? It's really easy for us to say, hey, can I help you with something? But when the table is turned and we are the ones needing rescue, we are the ones needing help, sometimes it's really hard to acknowledge that. That's why it's hard to come to faith sometimes because we just think that we can pull us ourselves up by our bootstraps, that we can gut it out and go up the trail of shifting sands all on our own and struggle under all of the weight that we're carrying and somehow, some way, we're going to make it and we don't want to accept help. We don't want to accept God's grace and forgiveness and mercy. So after some prodding, <laughs> Bob finally relented and said, okay. So I put his backpack on and we started going and stopped every so often. We came up on Ginger, and Lisa was able to take her pack, and we helped get them to the top. And at the top, they just looked at us and said, there's no way that we would have been able to do that on our own. Thank you so much. We ended up having a nice evening meal with them and get to hear their story a little bit. And she leads hikes on a professional basis. And... Uh, she had an injury of her own, and, and, and they thought that they could make it, but at one point they realized that they couldn't. And when they accepted the rescue at that point, it turned their outlook. Joy started to come out. Thankfulness and gratefulness, all of those things, when we sink into and lean into God for salvation, those are the things that happen inside us. And while we're struggling under all of that weight, the joy is gone. There isn't any. Because we're just trying to take the next step and we're sweating it out and gutting it and we're falling down every so often. And it's hard to live a joyful existence when that's your circumstance. But because Jesus came to die on the cross and to take that burden of sin off of us, when we say, yeah, you, you can take this backpack of all my junk, all my mess, all my sin, Lord, take that away, and he does, it's freeing. It releases you to move into the future that God would have for you. It allows you to have these moments of joy that, yes, God, thank you for rescuing me. Paul and Silas are sitting there, backs against the wall in the prison, and they're remembering not their present circumstances. They're not choosing to gripe and complain about it and post it on Facebook and, and start a GoFundMe campaign to get them out of jail. What they're doing is they're thanking God and they're praising Him despite their circumstances for the fact that God removed their sin and saved them. That's a good lesson for all of us to remember when we go through the junk of life. And you know what? In that moment, the one other thing that I want to share with you is in that moment, it turned into an opportunity to share Jesus with other people. 
the human, the natural thing for most of us to do would be to be in that spot and to, to go ahead and to gripe and complain and curse at the people that put us in that predicament. That's not what was compelling them to act. It was God's salvation. And their response of joy, their response of prayer, their response of singing in that moment spoke to the other prisoners that were there and ultimately to the jailer. I don't think that their prayer was, God, get me out of here. Because as the story unfolds, they pray, they sing, the prisoners um, listen. The next verse says that there was an earthquake that rattled the jail and all the doors flew open and all the stocks were loosed and the chains broken and all of the prisoners could have walked right out of that jail, Paul and Silas included. I don't think their prayer was for God, get me out of here, because if it was, they would have run out of there saying, yes, Lord, you saved me in this particular way. I think their prayer was that their circumstance, their being there would be a testimony to all of the other people around them. Because instead of running out, they convinced all of the prisoners to stay. And so the jailer wakes up from this earthquake. He sees all of the doors open. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, the jailer, responsible for all of these prisoners, if there were any kind of escape, he would be held personally responsible, which probably would have meant public beating and perhaps even death. So he's there. He sees what's happened, assumes everybody's gone. He's ready to take his own life. And Paul yells out to him, don't do that, brother. We're all here. And in that moment, the jailer comes undone. He realizes the mess, the trouble, the turmoil that he's in, in that particular situation, but I think that there's a spiritual reality to that as well, that something about these two and the story and the prayers and the singing got in, worked its way into his heart, and in that moment, he says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be rescued? And he's not talking about what do I need to do um, to learn more about Jesus. He is just coming to a moment where he recognizes that there is a Lord above anything that he has ever identified. And Paul points the jailer to Jesus. In other places, Paul talks, he says, if you confess with your mouth, and you believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, you will be saved. End of story. Everything else, all of the worship, all of the prayers, all of the teaching, all of the theology, all of that is wrapped up in that statement. All you need to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. All the other stuff that we do, folks, fits in that statement. It comes down to that confession of faith. And in that moment, this jailer, he binds the wounds. He, 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 he washes the wounds that Paul and Silas have endured. He takes them into his own home. And Luke tells us that not only was this jailer saved that day, but his entire family. And not only was he saved that day, but his entire household was baptized that night. We're about to have a baptism. 
And sometimes in the church, we put barriers up to baptism. Like, maybe not intentionally, but by practice, sometimes we have operated in our long history of the capital C church, not this local body, but sometimes we've put up too many barriers. Like, you have to, you have to be a believer for so long. Or you have to go th- jump through all of these hoops and be able to say all of these prayers and recite all of this theology, all of which are really good things, things that we come to know as believers in Christ. But the entrance requirement into the kingdom, the bar is low. It's the confession that we just talked about. And the confession of faith, I confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. That's what qualifies you for baptism. And in this moment, this whole family made that confession, and Paul's like, hey, Let's baptize you into the family of believers. Let's baptize you into the church. And when you are baptized into the church in that way, you are welcomed in. And from that point on, when you have moments like this gathered in this room as the family of believers, this is where all of the teaching happens. This is where we come to know the life of worship and fellowship and are introduced into biblical theology and and how to practice that and apply it to our lives. If you remember Jesus' command as he was, before he ascended into heaven, he said, go make disciples of all nations, right? What's the next thing that he said? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And what does he say after that? And teaching them. Baptism came before teaching, even in Jesus' own great commission. All of the teaching is needed. It's necessary. And we go through with that. But if, if you have made a confession of faith and you've never been baptized, I, I want to tell you that your public confession qualifies you for baptism. I'd love to have the opportunity to talk with that about you and what that might look like and welcome you into the life of a congregation, into a life of what we call discipleship, of, of practicing these things, of, of worship and fellowship and discipleship and all of these things that go into learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus. All that can happen after your baptism. But maybe you have Maybe you made a confession of faith 50 years ago. And for whatever reason, you know, it just doesn't seem like the right moment or you haven't felt right. Or maybe, maybe you've been carrying a burden that you just don't know enough yet to be baptized. Can I just take that burden away this morning? If you've been putting off baptism because you feel like you're not qualified, but you've made a confession of faith, you are qualified to be baptized. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and um, my friend Garth, he's going to go get ready, and we're going to move over to the baptistry, and, and we're going to celebrate with our brother. Uh, and, and there's a stack of towels in the back, and you might not have come prepared to be baptized, but if there's something stirring in your heart, like why, why am I waiting any longer, I'll baptize you. Because it's under the authority and the command of Jesus that we do such things.
And it's not me. I, I get to participate and celebrate and get wet, and I love that. But it's done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.